Hey, this episode of Rainmaker FM is brought to you by Authority Rainmaker. It's a different kind of online marketing conference. For one thing, Henry Rollins is keynoting. Get all the details at authorityrainmaker.com. That's authorityrainmaker.com. And yes, it's that Henry Rollins. Brian Clark and welcome to the show. Today's guest is musician, writer, journalist, publisher, actor, television and radio host, spoken word artist, comedian, and activist, Henry Rollins. Uh, Did I mention that he just started his own podcast and he's kind of a personal hero to me? Yeah. Well, the reason why Henry is on this podcast, and more importantly, why he's doing the closing keynote at our conference in May comes down to this quote from an interview he did. I think he was on tour in New Zealand at the time. Here's what he said. Everything I do, writing, touring, traveling, it all comes from the punk and hardcore attitude, from that expression, from being open to try things but relying on yourself, taking what you have into the battle and making of it what you will, hoping you can figure it out as you go. Now, I'm not comparing what we do as DIY media creators to getting in the van and touring with a punk band. Truth is, with all the tools we have, plus the open internet, we have it pretty damn easy. But it's the attitude that matters and the work ethic. And that's exactly why everyone should be listening to what Mr. Rollins has to say. Henry, thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. So, first of all, I was delighted and maybe even surprised a little, given that you have a radio show and you, you got a television show and you just started a podcast uh, called Henry and Heidi. And from listening to the first episode, it's clear that you blame Heidi for the whole thing, but why don't you shed a little light on that relationship and how that came to happen? Heidi uh, came to uh, my publishing company as a new hire about 17 point something years ago. And on our first, for the first hour there, we were already arguing, and not in a mean way, but she, she basically said, are you always like this? Because if you are, I'm out of here. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> and so we, we agree on most things, but she uh, finds it uh, necessary to discipline and school me fairly often. And so uh, she's come up with a lot of ideas that we utilize at this company, the publishing company, we do books. A lot of the ways we do things are her ideas. And a lot of the ways we edit books and the way we go after work, for me, are Heidi's innovations. And so it's been a really good lesson for me over the years to learn to collaborate with someone and when to listen when I want to argue and it's, it's very difficult for some of us just to shut our mouths. Very hard for me. But I've learned that Heidi often has the best idea. In fact, usually you can kind of count on that. And so when she has an idea, I have learned to shut up and take notes. And so it's been, it's been uh, very interesting. And everywhere we go, we're always nattering at each other. And people ask us, how long have you two been married? And, I, you know, I, I'm, we're not married or at all, you know, uh, related in that way. 
we're very good friends, obviously. But so it's been an interesting relationship. And as technology furthers and, and makes things more accessible just to plain old folks, we've also been discovering those different platforms with recently like the podcast, which was all Heidi's idea. She said, we should do a podcast. I said, well, I need to get a different uh, bit of gear because I only have one microphone in. So I have one box for doing my voiceover for auditions and my radio show. She said, well, get a different box then. I said, okay. So I did that, and my engineer buddy came in and, and set it up and gave me some lessons. And we made our first podcast, and that's, a, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And the thing is incredibly successful, which both of us are still quite confused by. I mean, it's, it does very well. But that was all Heidi's idea. And so we just do our thing right in the office with two microphones and whatever this gadget is that gets us uh, into a wave file. Yeah. So it's interesting to me, full circle, you know, I remember first time I heard Black Flag was when I was 16, it was damaged. You know, I, I didn't even know that you weren't the first singer of Black Flag that you came from the audience, but you guys... And I want to talk about that a little bit. You you did everything yourselves. And then, of course, you've been in films and you're in radio and, and television. And, and now you come full, full circle to where you sit in your office and do it yourself again with uh, your longtime uh, co-conspirator. How does that feel? It, it feels great to have such an autonomy and be able to keep doing it year after year and being able to rely on your inspiration and your hard work and the fact that it pays off. And when I say that word pays, I mean, I'm very careful with anything that sounds or smells like money. For me, paying off is the ability to do it next year and the year after and the year after. You know, something that is, uh, is able to be sustained. A sustainable, innovative work environment is kind of sort of all I've ever wanted. And you'll find that with a lot of DIY companies. I just want to keep the lights on and keep the ideas going because I enjoy the ideas more and executing them and realizing them. And then ultimately, let's say you finish a book. The best part about finishing a book is you get it off your desk, and all of a sudden you have an empty desk that you can fill up with a new idea. It's like building a big ship over and over again. It's a great day when you crack the champagne over the mast of the ship, if that's what they do, and you set it out. But then you have an empty harbor, like, well, okay. Let's get busy. And that's that you get inspired all over again. And to be able to do that year after year, that to me is the goal. It is the thing that gets me up early in the morning and has me obsessively working right through the weekend without really noticing, working through holidays. And I'm somewhat driven, but it's not like I'm driven because of the stockholders. I'm driven because I have a lot of ideas and only so much time. You know, life is finite but ideas are seemingly limitless. And so all of my DIY pursuits all come from one basic idea of, I want to do this. You have ideas. Well, I have ideas too. And you, you have to kind of wrap them in steel, you know, and take them into the, the battleground of the world because you're not the only person thinking of things. You know, one of the things that a lot of DIY people don't take into account is, there's other innovative people who wake up early just like you, and their ideas are good too. And you're all, in a way, competing for a certain bandwidth. 
there's only so many people in the world who are going to be anywhere near what you want to do or what you want to bring them. And they only have so much time, money, and attention that they can bring to any one thing. So it's you and five other people or more. Like, what if you had a record company? Well, we have really great bands. You know what? There's a lot of good labels and a lot of good bands. Why should I get your record? Well, and, and all of your getting up early in the morning comes from an, trying to answer that question. But I go into that basic question with the same thing I've always gone into, everything from being on a record label that was owned by the band or owned by members of the band, to starting my own companies, which I've, I've had my own company since 1983. And um, they, still, you know, they still keep going. But it, it, that, it, that single idea of really wanting to do something and you find that you, have, you must put every single thing you have into that idea. Your DNA, every amount of affection, everything you've got goes into those ideas to where you're, you had no idea you could be that tired and still work. But you push yourself quite often past any rational threshold of exhaustion or sanity and realize, oh, I can do 19 hours. I can still function at 19 hours. It's not good for your health. To, to sustain that, but you find out you can do some amazing amount of percent more than what you thought. And I learned that by being in Black Flag. I, I always thought I was a hard worker, and then I joined Black Flag, and then I realized what hard work was. Because the people around me, Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski, were these work mavens who made me look like a lightweight. So I learned very quickly, and it was not easy. It was a very hard adjustment to make. Yeah, that's hard to imagine as hard as we know you've worked over the years. Let's go back a little bit to Black Flag because you've done a lot on your own since then. I mean, but to a certain extent, of course, you sang lead in a band before you joined Black Flag. But it was, you know, the whole idea. So in Washington, D.C., where you came from, you know, you've got Minor Threat. No one wants to sign Minor Threat. They should have, but they didn't know. Uh, go to L.A., no one wants to sign Black Flag, so Greg Ginn starts SST. You guys produce and distribute your own records. You set up your own gigs and your own tours. Was that the learning experience of, of DIY, or did you already have the mentality before you joined the group? I had I had a baby version of it from watching Ian McKay, who is minor threat Fugazi. I watched him build Discord pretty much in his mom's on his mom's kitchen table. You know, like, okay, it's going to look like this. We're going to do this. And suddenly he's got a, you know, a, a mailing address. There's mail order. He has to sell things. And how are you going to do that, you know, ethically, fairly? How, how the band members, how people get paid? I watched him navigate all these obstacles to keep you from being a fair and decent person. And so, and he's quite good at it. But it was his, his inherent goodness that he brought to the table and what you see with discord and all the bands and all the, the music he's produced which is like this unfathomable amount of, of records ian has produced it's like it's kind of crazy when you see how many records have his name on the back he comes at it from the same basic core and so i got a, a the hang of it because i had my own little band and the second record on discord was my band i financed that record myself discord didn't have the money and my bandmates didn't either. I'm the one who had the full-time job. So I financed the, re the recording, the pressing, 
all of it was me, all like $800 of it. But in those days, that was a lot of money. When you're working for like $3.65 an hour, that's a lot of money. But you just do it. And so by the time I got in Black Flag, I had an idea. You know, got to have a mailing list. Got to be able to get to your people and all of that. But SST had was more formed. I mean, Ian got inspiration from SST. He used to get on the phone with Chuck Dukowski and get, and get crib notes. I remember that. He said, yeah, I called Chuck Dukowski of Black Flag today. I said, you did what? I mean, these people were from Mars to us. We were like relative, you know, hickoids. I said, you, how'd you do that? Because I, I looked them up in the directory. I, you can do that? <laughs> I wouldn't have even have thought of that. But, you know, Ian, he just, you know, he'll, he'll meet anybody. Like, nothing really blows his hair back. Like, he could meet the president and go, like, oh, hey, I voted for you. And, see ya. I mean, like, he, nothing really gets at him. And so he called Chuck and said, well, here's what I'm doing. And sent him, you know, a couple of Discord records. I think that's how Black Flag first heard me, was we sent him my little record. Anyway, SST was more developed, had a more catalog, and had more time in that arena and were very ambitious. They were running at it where Ian was finding his way through the forest. SST was kind of taking machetes to the dense undergrowth looking to build a superhighway. And so all of a sudden you're doing band practice and they gave me assignments. You're going to be manage all the press. You're going to take care of all the incoming mail. And all of a sudden I had this really full-time archival public relations man thing going where I'm the one relating to the fans. I'm the one keeping all the flyers. I put that job on myself, but I'm the one going through all the mail, okay, mail order, fan mail, taking down everyone's address for the mailing list and writing up the newsletter, things like that. It was all part and parcel of doing everything yourself. And you realize very quickly how much labor is involved. Like you want to do it on your own. Okay. It's, might very well be more than what you thought it was going to be. So you better be ready or you better be ready to be ready. And for me, that's what it was. It was like, wow, you jump out of the plane and you land really hard. And so for the first fiscal quarter or the first four, you know, three or six months of black flag for me were it was like doing more push-ups than you're able to and still somehow being able to do them. Yeah, that's an amazing story. In my mind, I always kind of thought of Discord and SST as being these comparable running at the same time movements in different parts of the country. But I had no idea that Discord was the startup compared to SST. That's Yeah, well, we bought the first Black Flag record before there was anything else, before there was a Discord anything. And certainly SST isn't the only independent label in the world. And sure. we were buying independent label records from bands in D.C. In fact, it was Skip Groff at Yesterday and Today Records who had a label called Limp. He gave us the address to send your tape to get made into a record. We didn't know. And Skip produced my first record because he showed me and Ian where Don Zentera's Inner Ear Studio is, where Ian still works to this day. Different building, same guy. But Skip, who had a local record store, and, and local record stores, as you might know, were responsible for most of the independent labels, uh, or at least a, a large fraction. 
of the independent music labels in the 50s and onwards. A lot of your doo-wop records, that was local, local bands, like local to the area code or zip code. And the, the, the person putting out the record was the local record store, like the famous doo-wop label Times Square Records. That's Times Square Record Store located at Times Square in New York. That was a guy who, the local talent, these kids would come in and literally sing a cappella for him. And he'd go, okay, let's get you guys in the studio. We'll get your rhythm section, a piano player, and we'll do this, and I'll put out the record. And, and from these independent labels, you get, you know, songs that are, like, epic, but they started being sold out of a, a record store with super local distribution. Like, the guy comes in his car, picks up, a hundred of yours with a hundred of the other guys and drives it over to the next county, puts them in jukeboxes and puts them in other record stores. This is, all of that is super homegrown. And so what SST and Discord were doing was in no way new, but for us it was new. I mean, we, I remember when Ian and I first walked into the recording studio where he did his first demo and we were looking around like, like pilgrims. Wow, look, microphones. I mean, it was all <laughs> new land. Yeah. And it was just, it was a very interesting new world for us. We got the hang of it very quickly. But so the DIY thing was imprinted upon me as the way to do it from the get go. And to have that idea of empowerment by age 18 or thereabouts is incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's very instructive to be able to see what you can do. Because a lot of people are so awed by everything from a major label to a huge production studio like Warner Brothers. They are cowed by the immense size and proficiency of these amazing corporations. I mean, Warner Brothers, Sony, they can turn a film around or an album. They can probably rebuild a bridge or send a man to the moon at this point. But you, with your idea and your crazy garage band, what, what do you think you're going to do? And the idea of doing nothing probably kept a lot of really good music, independent film, literature, poetry, comic books, or whatever else from coming to fruition. Because you look at everything and go, ah, I could never do that. Yeah. And thankfully, I was around people who went, oh, yeah, watch this. Because on my own, I never would have had that kind of, the kind of guts or innovation. I did not come upon it naturally. It was taught to me. Yes. Excellent. So I remember Black Flag broke up in the summer of 1986. I had just graduated from high school, heading to college. It's like that figures. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, so college ended up like this weird mashup of Guns N' Roses and Jane's Addiction, which was the odd dichotomy of Los Angeles at that time. Right. But you, you just, so here's the story that I hear that you wanted to write your first book. You did. You needed a company to do that. Yeah. So you named it after your birthday, 21361. I thought I was being witty. I thought I was being funny. I'll name it after myself because it is me. And I liked the way the numbers sounded. And I thought there was be no other way to name anything that would get to my DNA more than my birthday. And so I uh, published this first uh, little paperback book after saving money from doing a couple of runs of a fold and staple book, which I, you know, with things like that, you, you make 500 and 
I'll sell them all. Well, you sell, you sell about eight, and the rest you just give away. So I did two runs of 500 of that, which gave me enough money, along with my, you know, saving my per diem money from being on tour, to make my first paperback. And I got some good advice from a, a local promoter. He said, you need a DBA, which I did not know what a doing business as thing was. He goes, here's how you do it. And I still have my DBA to this day. So I never even opened it. It's like in an envelope. You take out an ad in a paper or whatever. And I'm sure my people have come in behind all that and shirted it up so everything is like accountable. But that's how I started. And my first real identity was a P.O. Box. P.O. Box 2461 Redondo Beach, California. And now people can reach me. And I can now take out small ads in fanzines. Or... I'll trade you that one of your books for an ad in my fanzine. Okay. You'd barter. And all of a sudden, there's people have a way to get to you. you. You basically have a presence. And this is obviously before the internet. So while I was in Black Flag on SST Records, I had my own company going, but with no other artist than me on it, it was relatively easy to run. I'd write and publish and store the inventory wherever I was living at the time. So it'd be like me and, you know, 1,500 books. I'd be like, you know, hauling <laughs> wherever, whatever hovel I was camping out in. Yeah, so your original spoken word recordings were all published by your company. The, the yeah. first iteration of the Rollins Band was the records were released by that company, right? Well, the, um, I basically bought and paid for the first few records and then we signed to a small independent label and we did uh, one record with them and then we left but the first two three four were five were done by I paid for and then we did one on Texas Hotel mm-hmm and then, but at the same time, I'm doing spoken word albums as well, and I obviously paid for all of those. And then we signed to a label called Imago Records, which is a major label through BMG. And that's when things changed in that it's no longer DIY. It is DIY got you to a major label. Right. And at that time, the major label was a very good thing for us because you have this hyper-ambitious band with what I think are good songs. But our megaphone, you know, me, a, my cannon to get me to you is only so big. You know, the record will go 30 feet as far as I can throw it. But with a major label getting behind you, now you have some wallop. And if you have something good, now you just have a bigger engine to take it down the road. And so I leapt at the chance to be on a major. And I, I got some pushback. Were you selling out? I go, well, no, actually, I'm, I'm trying to be sustainable. And maybe I should have stuck to my guns and said, okay, maybe I should be like Ian and just triple down on, on having a record company and staff up and try to do it that way. But looking at what I achieved in the major label world, I truly think I did the right thing. 
Yeah, and that that's leads me to my next question because it's very interesting. Because think about back to the early '90s. You know, Nevermind happened. In Utero happened. Everyone knows that Nirvana never happens without bands like Black Flag. Okay. And, and then never happens without a band like the MC5 or the Stooges. Well, right. You're absolutely right. There's yeah. a long lineage, but you know, did the mainstream world ever actually acknowledge that until after the after the fact? You know, well, that, that, that happens all the time. Of so course. So people are bigger after they're dead. Yeah. Right. So in '94, you know, instead of being ignored by radio and, and MTV, you're all over MTV. Right. You know, the Rollins band is huge. You were at, I think, the first Lollapalooza. I was there in some city, uh, I think Houston. And yet, Get in the Van is self-published. Now, did you try to get the big book deal? Because why wouldn't they want Henry Rollins in his book? They probably did. Um, We never sought book deals. I think management was probably too afraid to approach me. Because anything you do with management, management gets a piece of the action. And I think if management said, hey, let's try and get you on Random House, he, he was probably afraid I would have come at him with a stick, <laughs> which I wouldn't have done, but I wouldn't have said yes. And I probably wouldn't look at him like, are you crazy? Because at that point, I had like a three-person staff, a, an office, and we were, we had distribution. I mean, we were in the mix. We were doing very well very, you know, very sturdy, independent company. It very well could have been that, say, Get in the Van had come out on whatever major publisher. It could have been epic. I did license Get in the Van, the audio book, to Time Warner. You know, I I licensed it. I I retained all the rights. But I said, well, you can have it for five years. And they did that deal, and and that, that actually won a Grammy. Yeah, no, I, I remember that, which is amazing because... Yeah, it's, it's crazy seeing that thing in our office. I mean, it looks like this weird, like, you, that, uh-huh. But it is like the, one of the oddest Grammys, you know, Grammy Awards I think ever given. Like a guy like me writing a, a, a book like that gets a Grammy. That's just crazy. But I, I've never been tempted to turn over my back catalog to another company. I have done two books that were not on my imprint. One was a buddy of mine over, I think, at Random House. He said, you know, I work at a really big publishing house, and I'm a fan of yours. He's a really good guy. He said, look, let's do a kind of a best of, like a a, a portable Henry Rollins. Let me put it out here, and it'll get people to your catalog. He He just liked me, and he just said, I just want more people to read your books, and you're never gonna get the same impact with your label that I have with mine. So let me use my label to help get people to yours. And which is the most, you know, one of the more benevolent things a guy could have done for another guy. Just amazing. He's a really good person. And that book, the portable Henry Rollins has gotten a lot of people to the rest of my catalog. Like I sign copies of that book all the time at shows for a lot of people. That's the one book of mine they have. And yeah. they go, yeah, I know you have other books, but I've never checked. I'm like, well, you know, you will or you won't. And a couple of years ago, I had finished a photo book, and I showed it to Heidi. He said, good book. I said, so when do you want to put it out? She goes, let's not put it out on this company. I said, why? She goes, photo books are murder to 
set up. I mean, it's a, so much of a cash outlay. She said, look, let's license it. Let's get an agent. Let's, let's like license the title. And so we don't have to endure bleeding out that much money to, to produce it. And like I told you before, you know, Heidi and I have been working together a long time. Her ideas about 99.999% of the time are the, are the best idea. So, okay, we got an agent and the book got placed at a very good publishing house called Chicago Review. And does, the book does incredibly well. So there's this, this theme through your career. And, and in my world, you have some people who use DIY media and they really want to break into traditional media, whatever that means anymore. And some people have been incredibly successful at it because they're good, you know, but they don't want to ask permission. They want to take their own path, yep. uh, whether by necessity or uh, preference. You've done much the same thing, but you do have a show with KCRW, which is a fantastic station. And uh, you do have the History Channel, a show which my kids only know Henry Rollins through because they're not old enough yet to listen to Damaged or anything right. <laughs> else. <laughs> you know, you've been in the films. Uh, when we when I was thinking about this interview, I was so reminded of your uh, cameo on Californication as yourself. And, oh, Hank, yeah. and Hank Moody's over there ragging on bloggers. And I'm like, oh, dude, I hope that's uh, not what he's thinking about us. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, you know, the role in Sons of Anarchy. I mean, could you play someone more opposite of Henry? I mean, well, is that a kick for you or what? Yeah, I got a lot of I got some interesting letters about that. Henry, uh, how could you? But it is, it's acting, like you just said. I, mean, <laughs> I think it shows range, if anything. Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't always pleasant. I mean, the guy was despicable, but it was an interesting world to live in for six months. I mean, a thing I think is worth mentioning is I, I talked about preparing a book and licensing it to a Chicago Review or doing Get in Van, the audio book, and licensing it to Time Warner. Well, and you, you might think, well, where's the DIY in that? Well, all the parts were produced here in this office. I mean, the, everything was DIY, produced and assembled. You, I think it's not a bad idea necessarily to take your, your homemade whiskey and get it distribution because the product is still the same. You just have to be careful of how it is rolled out to people. And so I don't have a problem with coming up with something here, like the photo book, where Heidi said, look, just let someone else deal with a six-figure overhead for producing the photo book, and let's just concentrate on the next photo book. I'm like, wow, okay. And that turned into an amazing idea. Yet the book you see, it's called Occupants, if you ever encounter that book, what you see is what you, I wanted you to see. There's, there's, there was nothing held back. There's no image that I sent them that with the book company went, oh, oh, no, 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 no. I mean, that would have been a deal breaker for me. That would have been the DIY going, oh, really? That photo can't, you're censoring me? I'm out. And I told them when I met them, I, I, I went to Chicago to meet with them. And I said, I, I, don't, uh, I don't do censorship. And they said, oh, no, we, we know who we're dealing with. I said, okay, 
I said, I'm not trying to be a tough guy. I said, but if you're going to have problems with anything I'm going to do, uh, either you trust me and you let this happen, or let's just um, tear everything up now and, and not aggravate each other. We're, we're adults and we're professionals and we're all hyper busy. Why, why waste each other's time? And they said, no, no, you, you do your thing and we'll be here to, to you know, get it going. And me and this editor you know, worked with each other face-to-face in each other's grills for, for months. And we put that book together. And his editing and his help actually made it a far better book than what I could have done. His help was immeasurable. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to ask, which is, in one sense, it, it may seem that your tolerance of, of traditional media companies might be thin, and yet I think people are more scared of you than perhaps they ought to be, because you seem like a fairly agreeable person when it comes down to it. Well, yeah, I just want to get the work done, and I guess to some people I might be intense or whatever, but uh, you know, I, I'm not the one getting drunk and punching holes in walls. <laughs> and shaking my wife, you know, I, I, that's just so not ever going to be me. Um, but the, the, the point I wanted to hammer in is that the, the intent of the book, whether it came out on my imprint or in Chicago Review, which is a very fine company, the, the intent was still the same. I want to make this book. I want you to check it out. I want to connect with you via this book. And so the intent, like the actual product, the meal was cooked with love. It's just getting a wider audience to serve it to. And this was, you might find this fascinating. Um, if you have an original pressing of the damaged record, which is fairly hard to come by by now, but you'll see on the, you'll see a sticker on the back, a hand, a hand placed sticker. And that sticker is covering the MCA logo. Now, what's SST, little old SST Records, doing with a massive MCA logo on the back of the record? Greg and Chuck did a distribution deal for that album with MCA. And this, to them, was the epitome. This was the zenith of the idea to take your underground, DIY, unapologetic, unrestrained effort and give it the biggest possible distribution. It backfired because eventually the president of MCA heard the record and went, no. Unfortunately for us, we had already printed the cover. And so we had to go down to the pressing plant and put stickers on 25,000 records ourselves. Oh, my God. And it, it was me, Black Flag members, Raymond Pettibone, the great artist, Spot, the producer, members of Saccharin Trust, the Minutemen, and any other band or friend. It was like, it's a huge undertaking. We're in like some warehouse with pallets of 12-inch boxes of records. It took days. Like, I'm hungry. Shut up. You're like, okay. <laughs> and it's because we had to get it done. But that's the reason you see the sticker. So even in those days, Black Flag was trying to get the big distribution. Because in our minds, why shouldn't we be next to Led Zeppelin. But what? We're not in the house? We, like, I, I went to a record, so I couldn't find your record. But why not? Like, we should be as big as ABBA. Who you? I mean, we're coming. And when we found out that that wasn't going to happen, we were like, okay, we just have to get better with independent, independent distribution, which for an ambitious band in those days was so frustrating because 
these these distributors, their their hands are tied. I mean, everything is minimized and truncated and small and tied off and nailed to the floor, where the bands are rip-roaring with ambition. You're young, you're angry, you're writing four songs a minute. I mean, everything is you're at this incredible metabolic rate. And everything around you is like, oh, I'm sorry, we, the battery ran out, and my mom said I couldn't go. Like all, all this like, kind of piddly excuses for why you can't take your Lamborghini out into the world and floor it. It's like, no, there's a, you know, a thing. A guy said you have to sign this. It was just so many small, like, really? And there's a, so there's a lot of frustration. And, but uh, the autonomy kind of negated the frustration and you realize the frustration was kind of part of the thing that kept you kind of burning the midnight oil you know it's like okay you're not going to let me in well i'm just going to build a bigger ladder Hell, i'll dig underneath the wall and come in but i'm coming yeah and eventually you know you you find a way to break through and what's the difference is in from then to now ambition is the same innovation is the same in that some people are going to come up with like really great ideas. Oh, like Twitter, like things that do pretty well. Uh, but nowadays, the internet and the able to reach a massive amount of people, like you have hundreds of thousands of listeners to your podcast on any given time. Imagine trying to reach them through the USPS like we used to do with a mail out. We used to lick stamps and put them on some newsletter and send them out in hopes that someone would read it. You'd get about 20% of those things coming back two weeks later, return to sender because that guy had moved and like, wow, that's how much money did we just spend on that? And and like, wow, that was hundreds of dollars. My little publishing company, we had to teach ourselves how to, how to sort zone mail to, so we could save money. It's a bitch to learn to do that, but we did it. And you'd send out thousands of these very ambitious 11 by 17 double-sided, laid-out, beautiful mailing list newsletter things to watch stuffful bags of them come back. And you're like, okay, that was like, you know, $1,100, $1,300 we are never getting back. And for a little company, you might as well just light our cars on fire. I mean, we just couldn't afford it. So this, the small DIY person with a great idea can, I want you to hear my band, Bandcamp. Like, let me hear your record for free, and if I like it, I'll buy it. That has led, at least for me, to so, I have bought so many records from bands because they let me hear their music online. I bought, I bought like seven records from some crazy Russian band the other day because I could listen to all their music for free online. I heard, you know, a couple of songs, a couple of songs there, bought the entire catalog. And that's Uh, the big difference between when I was young and the young, innovative DIY person now. Yeah, and I kind of alluded to that at the beginning. It's almost like, what's your excuse? You know, I mean, you've you've got this amazing opportunity, and that's really what turned me away from being an attorney a long time ago, thank God, to give it all up and try this internet thing. And it worked out, but only because I was willing to do it all myself for a while and then pretty much stick to my guns by it. Let me ask you this, because the example of Black Flag and punk in the 80s as being this really marginalized subculture compared to the mainstream 
Um, now we live in a world where everything is fragmented. You know, everything is every little worldview and everyone can choose who they want to listen to. On one hand, that's an amazing opportunity. Uh, on the other hand, you have to realize that you have to speak to your people only and ignore the rest of the world. And a lot of people struggle with that. So it, it brings to mind when my parents walked in my room and heard a six pack and they did not detect the irony and neither did a lot of my, you know, less than stellar friends in high school who were like, yeah, let's get drunk. They didn't get that. It was sarcastic. How do you deal with being misunderstood? Does it bother you? Years ago, about 20 some years ago, uh, I met a PR person who became my, uh, my PR person for many, many years. And she said, um, you're not all that well represented in the media. They have this idea that you're some drooling, stupid psychopath when you can actually, you know, articulate yourself pretty well. We got to, it's going to take a while, but we're going to teach these people that you can finish a sentence. And so you're going to do a lot of interviews for like the next few years, and it's going to be a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to be to your great benefit. And in those years, it, it, things changed dramatically. And so I think one must be very, very clear in a world where we communicate all the time, but we don't always speak. And so it's funny in an email might be sarcastic to the other person. Or like, I think I'm being funny and I somehow offend you. And if you know this, if you go online, movie stars, politicians, etc., apologize all the time. I'm sorry that thing I said went over the line. Did it? Well, that's a whole other discussion what that line is. But I thought I was being funny. Uh, no one thought you were funny. Whoops. When that whoops, is a tweet that is read by 750,000 people. That's a big oops. And it's a big mess to clean up. And so what do you do? Do you not say anything? Do you censor yourself? Or you just maybe take a moment before you open your big mouth, realizing the stage, the platform, that you can now launch Invective or anything else is huge. Like, and people are reading. They are listening. They wake up in the morning and their brains are moving. And so I try to choose my words carefully. And believe it or not, the Internet and the fact that everyone's in each other's business if they want has not necessarily led me to censor my thoughts, but to actually try and develop them more and be very, very clear when I speak. I also write for different publications, Rolling Stone Australia, the LA Weekly, uh, different newspapers hire me for a thing here, a thing there. A bunch of people are going to read that. So you better really read it over again and make sure that's what you want to say. And so for me, it, the idea of clarity and clarity of purpose is very important in the DIY world. Because to me, with your product, no matter what you're doing, if you're not making the world a better place, if you're not making it cleaner, safer, happier, kinder, less painful, screw you. I mean, I'm, I'm, unless you have a bondage and dominatrix company, people are paying to have an alley on their ass. That's all well and good. That's an elective. But if you're going to innovate, make my world better. And if you want me to buy something, 
sell me good stuff. Not only will I tell a friend and I'll come back, but don't, don't be a jerk. And, and don't, don't fake me out. Don't lie to me. Because a guy like me, I'm very easy to fool in that I, because I want to believe you. I want to think he's got or she's got the great idea. I'm in. And if you, if you want to run around, do a run around on me, you can do it because I'm not going to police you. I'm not going to always be looking. So if you're going to enter into this brave world of entrepreneurship or innovation, I think the best ideas of these people come from a basic goodness. Even Oppenheimer, who had some big regrets at the end of his life, you know, a lot of questions at the end of Oppenheimer's life. He went at it out of science and innovation and curiosity. And so the DIY person these days, you can touch a lot of people, and you should be careful with that, that sword you can very easily wield with the startup of a, of a, of a, of a website. I mean, you, you hear, I don't know if you ever do, and I wouldn't recommend it, but there's some extreme podcast people as far as white separatist groups and extreme political opinions as to what foreign policy should be or the way Americans should conduct themselves, stuff that is really repellent. And, you know, arguably, the, I defend it because I defend the First Amendment. But the Internet allows like a neo-Nazi group to get to every single person who is so inclined, who has as little as a cell phone. And so if you want to do good, you might be able to do a lot of good. But if you want to do bad, you can wreak havoc. But to me, the worst thing is to wreak mediocrity. If you, you can be, eh, and you can reach a lot of people with your, eh. And I, I can't stand, eh. I just can't stand it. Life is too short. So either blow my mind or leave me alone. Well put. This has been excellent, Henry, and I want to be respectful of your time. But if you can give us just a quick preview of what you're thinking about your presentation in May. Well, what I want to do is I want to come completely from the truth, which would be my experience, my very long experience in the DIY world. The good parts, the bad parts, what has succeeded for me, what I learned I'd love to save any interested person in that audience some time, some time and some heartache. You know, I, I got a broken nose over this one. I, I, I think it would be great if you didn't get one. So I'm going to tell you that when the thing fell down and went boom, and so maybe you can write that one down and never do anything like that and not waste great amounts of your time and money. And so what I'm, I'm no expert, I'm no business analyst, but I've been in the business world with you know, profit and loss and all of that for many years. Yet I come at it with a very punk rock DIY analog attitude. Like, I want your time and attention. I want to make really good stuff for you. Good radio, good book, good whatever. And I want you to dig it. I want you to, however you like that thing that I do, I want you to like it, be able to use it, and have it be a good a vitamin for your life. How, and getting that good intent into a thing that gets across to someone else, that's an interesting journey. And I'm going to talk about my personal journeys on all of that, the why, the how, and the fact that almost, well, over 30 years now, I have been doing sustaining companies 
that are benevolent engines. They do good things and have allowed me to do incredible things that I never thought would come my way. Like, you know, raise money for, for, for causes because people know me for my company. They now want me to do this charity thing. And the doors that all of this DIY stuff has opened, where by thinking for yourself, by being brave, you can have some interesting times, and I dare to say some fun, but you can, you can not go the way of so many you know, people who don't aspire to much. You can really unleash the great energy of the, you know, the, the, your, your, your brains. The fact that you are really good at something, some other people should be able to capitalize on that, as should you. And that's what I think should be kind of the paradigm of the DIY spirit. Let's do good stuff, especially in this age of things being so rapidly uploaded and accessible. Let's give them really good stuff. And maybe the people in that room can maybe make this the best century we've ever had. Maybe this will be the, the most war-free century we've had. I'm not off to a great start, but maybe it's these people with their great inventions who turn the thing around. I'm cer- certainly not looking to people of my dad's age for innovation. He must be 80-something by now, and he's not a dumb guy. He's a PhD, but at 80-something years of age, eh, you know, I'm not expecting him to get up, you know, launch out of his chair in the morning like I'm looking at some 23-year-old. And so you're, I'm gonna, I'm, I presume I'm talking to potential leaders and people who are going to influence others, like me. I, I, I'm always looking for somebody to tell me something good. And so that's who I, I think I'm speaking to, and that's basically what I'm going to be putting across. Excellent. I love it. Henry, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And uh, again, as I promised before we went on the air, I will not be a big freak of a fanboy when I get to meet you in May, but I am looking forward to it. You can tell. Oh, yeah, I can. And I really appreciate that. And I I must apologize again for being 18 minutes late calling you. That's so not me. I like (laughs) to say that I put the punk and punctual. But these auditions get me really nervous. Yeah, just so everyone knows, Henry is reading for a new role, and he was so absorbed in the script. He was a tad late. I could care less, frankly. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, <laughs> I get so nerved up about this stuff that I kind of forget everything around me. And I looked up at the clock. I'm like, no. So I don't like to uh, be that guy. But I was. So thank you for having some room. The punk and punctual. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I hope I came up with that. It was either me or Mark Twain. <laughs> All right, everyone, that wraps it up for this week. Hopefully we will be seeing you in May in Denver at the conference. Uh, Henry's going to shut down two days of incredible education with the kick in the ass you need to get it done. Uh, If not, I will at least talk to you next week. Take care. Take care.